Um, it's a, another brief visit, but I, it, any visit is, is, is worth making uh, to this fantastic city, um, especially in the summer. Uh, it is actually sunny, I can see. It's sunny outside, so some of you might want to do your picnic anyway. It looks, it looks good enough for me. Uh, in England, we picnic in the snow, so, so, um, so as far as I'm concerned, you guys, uh, you should make the most of this. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a brilliant week for weather, and, and um, uh, I love just being around you guys in, in this... Uh, I've only been to, to Liberty Church twice since you've been here in the Vondelkirk um, building, and just so grateful to God for this, this facility. It, it's such a joy to be able to gather here with you in the middle of the city in this fabulous venue, and uh, I, I'm, I'm always glad to be here and to see new people every time I get up to speak. Uh, some of you I recognize, some of you I don't, um, which is how it should be, um, and I hope I get to meet some of you after the meeting as well. If you have your Bible with you, perhaps you could turn with me to the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, and uh, we will uh, read in a moment from Matthew in chapter 16, and, uh, and then we will pray uh, briefly, and then I'll, I'll share some things from the reading. Um, I wanted to talk to you today really about the subject of Jesus' people, the, the, the people that Jesus, uh, the movement that Jesus began, the community that he began. Um, some people might ask the question, what, what did Jesus come to start? Uh, what, what, is the, what is the thing that he began in the world? Uh, the reason people might ask that is because um, th there are various great leaders through history who, who leave behind a great legacy. They, they, they achieve something uh, in their lifetime and, and after they've gone, um, you can look at the legacy and see their, their kind of influence uh, through history. And various people have, have perhaps commented on the relationship between Jesus and the church, Jesus and Christianity, and said, um, is, 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 the, is, Jesus, is the Jesus of the Bible anything to do with the church? Or the Jesus of history, is he, does he have any relationship to the church as we find her, as we see her, the church of history, the church of the present day, the church as the church is known all around the world now. Does that have any real relationship to, to Jesus? Or is the church more the kind of the invention of later generations? And wouldn't Jesus just kind of be a little bit bewildered or even repulsed, put off by coming across the church, if he, was to, if he was to visit his church today, would he, would he be a little bit disappointed or, or angry even uh, that this is what's being done in his name? And these are the kind of comments and questions that uh, you may have uh, gotten used to. Uh, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you would have perhaps pondered the relationship, relationship between Jesus and the church. And I want to talk a little bit about that in the time that we have and, uh, and then we'll, um, we'll respond to Jesus together in prayer and, and take bread and wine as a way of celebrating who he is and what he has done. Um, but let me just uh, read this passage to you. This is from chapter 16. I'm going to read to you from verse 13 
to verse 20. This is about, I was going to say halfway, it's certainly at a turning point in the story of Jesus' public career. Jesus was a public figure in Israel for about three and a half years. There came a point when he gathered his top leaders for a retreat and he took them quite a long way away, right up into the north country to Caesarea Philippi and he, he discussed with them the, the next stage, the, the journey forward. And it was, it was a kind of a massive change. It was a kind of a new emphasis. Because up till this point, it was, it was an exciting adventure just to follow Jesus around and just see what he did and listen to his teaching and be inspired and excited and occasionally fed and dazzled and blown away by some of the miracles that he did. But now he took away these key leaders. He said, okay, I need to give you guys the inside track on where this is all going. Uh, where it's all going for me personally and where it's going to go for you guys as my key disciples. So this is a, this is a major turning point in the story. And uh, it's really, it takes up the whole chapter of Matthew chapter 16. I'm just going to read to you from verse 13 to verse 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's just pray together. Father, thank you for this book. We thank you for your kindness to us in, in, Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who you send to help us to understand the scriptures, to open them up to us so that the light that is within these words can burst out into our lives and bring joy and hope, encouragement, um, and, and bring a sense of destiny and purpose and courage to our lives. And we pray that you would do that this morning. We pray, God, that you would speak to us very clearly about yourself, about who you are and about what you're doing in this city and across this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I, I don't know how you tend to think about uh, the church in general, how the word church provokes you, whether it brings up happy, positive, inspiring images, whether it stirs your imagination, 
or, or whether it, it dampens your imagination and uh, causes you a little bit of embarrassment even and awkwardness. Um, I, I tend to think of the church uh, in, 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 in a mixture of ways. I suppose growing up in, in the country I've grown up in, which is just the same in, 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 the, in, this, in this particular respect, I've gotten used to saying to people, if you want to investigate Christianity, don't look at the church, look at Jesus. I've said that to so many people. <laughs> I've said that to my friends, I've said that to people who come and ask me about Christianity, I've said that to people in all kinds of situations who say, what, what is Christianity? How, how, can I, how can I understand it well? And over the years, I've, I've gotten used to, almost bored hearing myself saying, well, just don't look, don't look at, at Christianity through just the church. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the one that will tell you. He's the pure example. He's the, he's, he's the, the, the kind of the, the original. And we need to look at him to understand Christianity. Now that's true, obviously. Jesus is obviously the one that Christianity is all about. And he is the, the right place for us to start and finish when it comes to understanding this, this book and, and the message of, of Christianity. But there's something wrong with that answer as well. There's something sad about it. To, to have to say, don't look at the church, whatever you do, is, is not ideal. Because when I... When I think about it and when I reflect on what this book is teaching I, I, I feel that it would be better to be able to say if you want to know what Christianity is like look at the church if you want to know what Jesus is like look at the church that that would be the right thing that would be healthy surely that that seems appropriate but for for many of us it's not quite like that it feels more like the kind of the awkwardness and it ranges from a sense of uh, shame or even anger about the church to just mild embarrassment. I remember when um, uh, I was a lot younger, uh, I guess I was in my late teens, I was at a party that uh, a friend was throwing, a kind of a fancy dress party, which I've always been a little bit opposed to. Fancy dress parties, that I, don't, I, I don't like them at all. But this was a peculiar one. This was one where it's come dressed as your parents. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever, any of you been to a come dressed as your parents party. No one in this room has been to one of those. Uh, I think this may have been the only one ever, but it was, it was, maybe it sounds like a cool idea, but it wasn't that good. So, um, so, so one of my friends, she, she comes dressed with some of her parents' clothes. And, uh, and you know the point in a fancy dress party when everyone just kind of puts on their normal clothes again. I don't know if you've been to, that's, that's how I, that's the bit, that's the redeeming moment for me. It's like, oh, can we just get out of these stupid clothes and put normal clothes on again? And she'd done that. And her dad came to collect her. You know, we were young enough for our parents to come and pick us up. Uh, I guess maybe we were younger than late teens, I don't know. But her, her dad came to pick her up and it was so funny because he comes into the hallway of the, the front door and she's there waiting for him to pick her up. And the first words he said to her are, oh, what happened to the lovely clothes that you were wearing when I dropped you off? And she's like, oh, Dad, don't say that in front of my friends. You know, he was so proud of the clothes that, that she'd worn as a mockery of him. 
And, and, and I guess it, it's kind of like that for us. You know, we sort of think of the church like wearing someone else's clothes, wearing our parents' clothes. It's not, it's not really us. It's just, it's like, it's like hand-me-downs. It's like the, the leftovers. It's, it's not really inspiring to us. And I, as I say, I've got used to sort of trying to draw people's attention away from the church. But then I look at the Bible <clears throat> and I realize that the church actually in the Bible has an extremely positive and inspiring identity. Not only that, I see in the Bible that Jesus himself, Jesus' heart beats faster when he thinks about the church. Jesus, Jesus himself, he is inspired, he is excited, he loves his church. Places like later in the New Testament when Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter five, he says, Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus loves the church enough to die for her. This is, this is his passion. This is the passion of Jesus, the church. He, he suffered and died because of his love for her. And here we see him talking about the church with this massive sense of ambition and pride, it seems, a certain sense of uh, focus and hope, destiny, I will build my church. That's him talking, that's Jesus talking. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. So what do we do with this, this negative image and feeling that we might have in association with the church? Well, let me just give you a few of that. There is an issue here of kind of branding control, brand consistency, you know, in, in in graphic design and advertising and marketing, this is a bit of an issue, like you know, brand consistency. I know that you guys live in Amsterdam, so probably about two-thirds of you are in marketing or branding or, or graphic design or something. That's a big deal in cities like ours. But you have to, well, you notice what happens when certain people get hold of a brand and use it on themselves, but they're not being true to the brand. And it's, it's, it's not very helpful. So the people who try and control the brand try to say, no, you're not allowed to use our name if you're not going to be true to what we do. That's not Apple or that's not, that's not Nike or that's not McDonald's or Coke or whatever. It needs to be true to who, how we build it. And, and in a sense, you could say well, Christianity or the church is like a great big massive brand. And it gets used sometimes, sometimes by people who aren't actually of the brand, sometimes. So the negative experience, people can look at the church and say, the church is responsible for some monstrous things, really bad, bad, bad things through the history of, of the world. That, that often it's been the, the Christians, the, the religious people, the church that have been right in the heart of some of the worst things that have happened. It would seem, I want to say to you, look, be careful, look more, look more carefully, it might not always be so. It may be that it's just somebody that's wearing the clothes but hasn't actually got the brand right. When, my, when I was at school, uh, I had a headmaster who, who, who used to say this. He used to say, listen, on your way home from school, you behave. When you are wearing that uniform, we all had a school uniform that was pretty much the same. He said, when you wear that uniform, you represent this school. So you go home from school and you, you, you abide by good principles. You behave well. You're polite to people. 
When you take off the uniform, I don't care what you do, he used to say. <laughs> you do what you like. You know, if you're not wearing the uniform, you can, yeah, whatever you like, you know, burn the school bus, eat the driver, do whatever you like, beat up old ladies, put them on spikes, do anything you like because you're not wearing the uniform, you're not representing me. But when you represent me, I want you to represent me well. And really, Christianity has been represented by people who shouldn't really be wearing the uniform. Some people who've said, well, I'm a Christian. And actually, if you look at it, you realize they're not at all. So let's, let's just remember that point. Second point to bear in mind, <laughs> sadly, <laughs> the, the, the converse is also true, and we just need to face it. Christianity has been represented by people who've done badly, and they are, in fact, Christians. So we can't hide behind that, oh, he's not really a Christian, she's not really a Christian. We can't say that forever, because in the end, we ourselves will do bad things, and we'll have to confess, yeah, I did that, and I am a Christian. In fact, when you think about it, that's part and parcel of the Christian message. The whole point of what Jesus is saying in this very story is he's looking at some very feeble, weak people. He's talking to a man called Peter. We don't know much about Peter, really. We don't know much about his previous life. All we know that he was, he was, he was a very bad fisherman, and that was his job. <laughs> that was his living, you know, and he wasn't very good at it. And, and, and so we know that much about him before Jesus chooses him as his chief disciple to change the world with. And actually, we find out that Peter's career, even when he becomes a disciple, is a little bit patchy. He makes big mistakes. He, he denies his master. He makes all kinds of errors that he has to be dealt with. For years, years to come, he's got all kinds of failures that he has to deal with. So Jesus isn't, isn't in the business of choosing the most impressive human specimens on planet Earth and saying, well, you'll do so you can be my church. It seems rather the opposite. Jesus deliberately chooses the, the less impressive, it seems, people who, who are less promising, who have weaknesses and frailties and trouble in their lives, people who let themselves down and seem to let him down. He says, well, you'll, you'll, you'll do. You'll, you're the ones I'll draw to myself. You're the ones that I'll raise up. You're the ones who'll represent me. But of course, if, if these are the ones that are going to represent Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised if occasionally the church looks at least a little bit wobbly. If the church at least occasionally disappoints us, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be too surprised because Jesus chose people who disappoint. Chose the weak. Chose the foolish. And in one way, that's very comforting. We'll come on to that in a moment. But in another way, it helps us to bear in mind, we, if the, let's just be careful how we judge the church. Third thing to say on this subject is, is it's the point is actually made later on in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians where Paul, Paul is t describing the, the, the kind of the, the way that um, uh, we're perceived if we, if we follow Jesus, if we're Christians, the way that we're perceived by the world around us. He says this, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. What, what is he saying? He's saying people are always gonna be mixed in their response. Even when we are being very good representatives of Jesus, even when we're being very faithful, a Christian might be being a very good Christian, but because we represent a God 
who humanity is trying to get away from, we will put people off even when we are doing brilliantly. So we mustn't again be too surprised. If people see the church and, and just can't bring themselves to be grateful for and love the church, again, we shouldn't be too surprised by that. We should also be careful of making some kind of false goal out of thinking, well, if we got the church just perfect, if we had the perfect meeting, where we had the perfect social action program, or we had the perfect small group. Wonderful. And that's the goal we should go for. We should go for the goal of everybody liking us. I tell you, that's a false goal. That will never happen. Jesus said himself, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. If they hate me, they will hate you. Even when we are doing utterly the right thing, Jesus was always doing utterly the right thing, and they still hated him. This, this was illustrated recently for me by, well, years ago, in fact, many years ago, by a documentary that was produced by uh, the, the journalist, who, late journalist Christopher Hitchens against uh, Mother Teresa. He did a whole long documentary attacking her for how appalling she is or was, a terrible person. You think, <laughs> if, if, if they're going to go after Mother Teresa... They're going to go after me. They're going to go after you. Even if you're as, as saintly and kind and charitable as she was, they still turn on you. Then we, we mustn't make a false goal out of being so good, having such a good record that people never turn on us. So there are some things to bear in mind when it comes to how the church gets judged. But let me say one more thing before we move on. One more thing that we've got to say, in spite of all the above. And that is that although the church definitely has challenges, has its problems, has its weaknesses, and although the church will, in this age, never be considered uh, as lovely as, it, as she might be, because the world will always react against the fragrance of Christ, the Bible still promises a wonderful destiny for the church. I really want you to hear that. That's the main thing I think I came to tell you today. And I want to just say it over the next few minutes by way of unpacking it. The, the Bible promises a wonderful destiny, a beautiful, dazzling destiny for the church. The Bible is positive about the church. Jesus himself right here, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Like I said, this is a turning point in his public career. He's, he's giving his kind of his, his big picture. He's like gathering his top executives like a CEO and saying, here's my dream. He's kind of getting the whiteboard out and he's writing it down or he's, he's unveiling a plaque or whatever or he's, he's standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and saying, I have a dream, you know, like the, the Dr. King speech. This is his kind of, this is Jesus' dream. It's, it's, it's as important as that. It's as central as that. Jesus is saying, guys, if, 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 you, if you want to know what I'm about, if you want to know what I've come to construct, to establish in history, I want you to know it's this, I will build my church. 
The church is what I've come to establish. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. The church is this preoccupying concern. Always has been. Always will be. And if we, if we don't get that, it's our problem, not his. I mean, you, just, just to help us kind of unpack this a little, you go back in Matthew's Gospel, you get to chapter 5, this is Tim talking about the same thing. He says this to his, to his people. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. What does Jesus see the church as? The light of the world. The light of the world. This is so important for us. Because we, we, will, we will, however excited we get and positive we get about the church, we will never catch up with him in his excitement and his passion for the church. If you see the church as an embarrassing stain in history, if you see the church as that awkward appendix to Christianity, to following Jesus, that thing I go to because I'm a Christian, or that thing that my Christian friends keep bullying me to come along to, you need to get on the right side of history. Because <laughs> the, the right side of history, if I might use that phrase that Barack Obama used to use, is that Jesus will have a people so dazzlingly bright, so reflecting his perfection, that ultimately she, she will be the praise of all the earth. This is, this is Jesus' agenda. He is building something glorious, something mind-blowing, overwhelming, something that takes your breath away. And it's called the church. He's come to, to marry her. He died for her. He will wed her one day. And if we, if we, you might look at me and say, this preacher is really excited about the church. You're really, you're really passionate about the church. I'm not. I'm not as much as he is. My, my passion for the church is tiny in comparison to his. I want you to see this. I want you to understand his zeal, his fire, his love for his people, his love for their, his hope for their future. We need to catch up with him. We need to see it the way that he sees it. A friend of mine is a, another preacher from England. And when he gets asked the question, what do you do? What's your job? He's a full-time uh, guy who travels around uh, as a preacher of Christianity. And he, he says this. I love this. this is his, when someone asks me, what do you do for a living? You know, on a plane or in a, in a, in a shop or whatever. I, I always say something a bit, I'm not very good at this. I kind of, uh, I'm a pastor of a church. I'm a church minister. I say something kind of black. With outlets in nearly every country of the world. We've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. We do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. We do all sorts of justice and reconciliation work. Basically, we look after people from birth to death and we deal in the area of behavioral alteration. So, so when he finishes this description, they're always on the edge of their seat, you know, the, well, tell me, what's it called? What is this amazing organization called? And he says, the church. Oh, oh yeah. My, my dad was, is a pastor as well. He's a preacher as well. And uh, I was listening to him preach once when I was, uh, I guess, about 17. And uh, he's, he was talking about a situation in Brazil 
where street children were being dealt with by the police in some of the worst slum areas. Uh, the police, were, it sounds horrific to believe this, but the, some of the police were dealing with, with slum children by shooting them. It was the only way they felt they could deal with the, 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 the significant social problem that they would, they just couldn't deal with it. It was such a horrible thing to hear talked about. And, and yet at the end of him making this point, he got to a kind of climax in what he was preaching about. And he said, the only hope for those children is, and I was waiting for him to say, Jesus. And he said, the only hope for those children is the church. I remember at the time I was listening to his preach and I thought, you got that wrong. You, you, can I, what, what, you got it wrong. That's the wrong answer. We all know the answer is Jesus, right? He got it right. Of course the answer is Jesus. Remember what Jesus said when he healed that blind man in John's gospel. Do you know this story? Jesus is healing a blind man and he said to his disciples, I am the light of the world while I am in the world. While I am in the world. And then remember what I said from Matthew 5 just a moment ago? He said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. How does Jesus want the light of God's glory to be spread abroad on planet Earth for people in Amsterdam as well as kids in Brazil? Through the church. That's the chosen means of revelation. God wants to show himself to the world through the community of God. This is why doing things like this, starting churches in places like Amsterdam, this is why a vision and a plan and a desire to keep planting churches and establishing God's people in every corner of the world, in the face of secularism, in the face of cities which are so confident that Christianity is over, <laughs> is so important. Because we're, we're saying, no, we believe in a greater story. We believe in a, a story that hasn't finished yet. God's, God's got a plan for planet Earth called the church. This is how God has chosen to dazzle the world through the church, Ephesians chapter three. His manifold wisdom, his great wisdom is made known to all the principalities and powers, all the powers, spiritual powers, powers and authorities of this world. God makes himself known through the church. We need to catch up with him and get his perspective. There are a couple of things that this means for us that will help us in a huge way. The first thing that this means for me and you, before I finish, is, is relief. <laughs> relief. Why do I say that? Well, I, I take huge confidence, and so should you, from the fact that he says in this passage, I will build my church. I will build my church. It's, it's ultimately his work. It's something he is doing. He didn't say, you are Peter and you will build my church, Peter. Or you better. We'll watch. I'm trusting you, Peter. Trusting you. You're my top guy. So we'll see how you get on. Man, if he said that, the church would have lasted a week. Or maybe about 10 seconds, because I don't know if you know the rest of the story. Within about four verses, he's telling Peter that he is Satan. <laughs> 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 so, 
So he he's literally says at one point, he says, Simon, you should be called Peter. Simon's his, family, his name, he was given as a kid. Jesus says, you should be called Peter, which means the rock. That's his name. He's going to give him a new name, the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. Within a few verses, he's saying, get behind me, Satan. So Peter's gone from the rock to Satan within a couple of seconds. We're talking about weak people. Talk about people who fail immediately. Immediately fails the first test. Turns up for work first day. I'm Satan? What happened on the door? You know, okay. So, so, so again, the Bible's making a point here, friends. This is his business, his sovereign responsibility. He'll do it. Very, very encouraging. I look around at my city. I look around at the needs. I look around at the, the, the difficulty for Christianity to even get a foothold. I look at Amsterdam. I look at Berlin. I look at cities where we're planting churches. I think, how are we going to get anywhere? How are we going to make progress? You ask Matt the story of how this church went. Some of you know very well how hard it was in the first year to get any momentum, to make any progress, to gather people. It's difficult. It's a challenge. It's, it's how do you do this? How do you build church in 21st century Europe? How can it possibly be done? It's impossible. People told Matt it's impossible. Pastors, pastors in this town, people who try, said, you can't plant a church in Amsterdam. <laughs> Give up. It's not going to happen. Don't even try. For ourselves, of course you can't. Of course you can't start churches in 21st century Europe. But thankfully, it's not up to us. Thankfully, there's someone else on the throne who said, I will do it. I'll build my church. If it was down to us, we'd get nowhere. And this is so relieving. It's so comforting. And it's, it's huge for us because it, it reminds us of the whole nature of our faith, doesn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm loved. I'm chosen. I'm granted a future, a destiny. I'm given some hope. Because he loves me, not because I prove myself. For some of you, that's the most important thing you'll hear today. For some of you, that's the thing you need to hear most of all. That, that God chooses the weak things of this world. You, you've got to grasp that. You've got to grab hold of that message. It's, it's huge for us to understand. A friend of mine was um, at a party for dignitaries in his town and uh, he, was, he was approached by somebody who said, oh, what is it you do? And these are quite important people in his town. What is it you do? He said, oh, I'm a pastor of a church. He said, oh, what church is that? And he told him the name of the church. He said, oh, I've heard of that church. Oh, I know that church. That church is full of failures. <laughs> so my friend said to him, yeah, that's true. It is, it's full of failures. Only difference between my church and you is that they've all realized that they're failures. That's exactly the right answer, right? That's what a Christian is. That's, that's, that's what a Christian is. So you, you might be here for the first time. You might be here visiting and wondering. Or as a guest, maybe someone's brought you along and your, your expectation of, of religion is that it's, it's something you have to achieve at. Like everything else in life, yeah? I have to get the exams. I have to climb the career ladder, I have to impress my parents, I have to be in the right peer group, I have to get enough clicks on social media, I have to get enough followers on Twitter, friends on Facebook. If I do well in these areas, I've made it. 
If I achieve in these areas, I'm valid. I've I'm a person of importance. It's a disastrous mistake. So all we're going to do is, is we're going to climb a ladder that's not, that just keeps going down. The more you go up, the more it goes down. And it's leaning against the wrong building anyway. The, the only way to know actual fulfillment is to receive it from someone who can give it to you. Not something you can achieve by your own strength. It's given as a gift by God. God gives us destiny. God gives us a role. God turns to weak people like Peter, like, like me and you. He says, I'm going to build with you. I'm going to use you. I'm going to choose you. I've got a, a destiny for you. And when you have that in your life, it, it fills you with it fills you with relief. It's not about me trying to achieve something for God. It's something that he has done for me. And it helps us as well to care a bit less about the shame of being a Christian. When I was a teenager, I had a turning point age 16 where I, I threw my lot in behind. I just wholeheartedly chose to follow Jesus. I just, I knew I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do it. I'd kind of been on the fence for years up until that point, like some of you might be. Am I going to follow him? Am I, I don't know. I don't know. What, I don't know. Where does my heart belong, in this world or in the world to come, it, with this, these people or with Jesus and his people? And the thing that I didn't want about Jesus was his people, his people, the ones I despised. I didn't like his people very much. I wasn't inspired by his people. It took a certain attitude in me. It took a certain breaking down of my own sense of pride. Realizing I've got nothing to prove. I'm not that impressive in myself. And I need to stop caring about the shame. Jesus is not ashamed of his church. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. If he's not ashamed, then I need to get off my high horse. I need to get over myself. I need to learn to be one of the despised people of God and care less about all the treasures of this world, but rather be numbered amongst God's despised people. Because actually the despised people are going to inherit the world. The meek will inherit the earth, Jesus said. It takes faith to see it that way, but that's the kind of faith that changes our hearts and helps us to push forward with hope. I remember... On another occasion, uh, be, being in a meeting where I, 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 was, a, I was leading this, this meeting, and I, it was a prayer meeting. Some people in my church were praying together for a certain, for a few things. And I, I, we, 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 I introduced a new subject for us to pray about. So, can we just, please, could we all pray for a certain um, gathering I've got to go to in my city, which is a kind of. Uh, a gathering of dignitaries like, like the one my other friend had gone to. And, uh, and there's going to be lots of leaders there. And I said this comment like, I don't know why I've been invited. I don't think I will have anything to say. And I, 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 goodness knows why they invited me in the first place. Complete mistake. Now, when English people say things like that, all they're really saying is, please like me because I'm self-deprecating. <laughs> we're, we're pretending to be humble and we hope people will like us as a result. But I was, I was really going for it in the kind of, you know, false humility thing. And my, my, my dad, who's, as I say, he's a pastor, he was in the meeting. And he said to me after, he said, what, what did you say that for? He said, do, do, you feel, do you feel that's worth saying? He said, are you called 
to this city or not? And, and I, I knew he was right. Are you called to this city or not? See, when you're, God's people pulled you, it changes your perspective. You realize, of course I should be at this meeting. Of course I need to be in, stand up strong in my workplace. Of course, it doesn't mean I become foolish and arrogant and rude or boisterous, but it does mean I have dignity to serve God. I represent the king. He's called, I'm part of his church. I'm part of his people, his community. What a tremendous dignity that gives to us. So, so this gives us comfort and relief, but it also gives us courage and backbone when we know that Jesus has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us, against it. I want to finish simply by saying that for some of you, this is a turning point message. This is a point where you need to decide that Jesus' church, Jesus' people is a priority in your life. For many of us, this, this doesn't come soon enough in our order of priorities. You know, we, we think, well, I, who do I marry? What job do I get? What career do I pursue? What do I study at university? What, what do I, we think about you know, what kind of salary do I go for? Do I go on holidays? What car do I get? What bike do I get? What, where do I live in the city? What do I, what, all these questions seem very high. And then, oh, which church do I go to? Can be about number 20. You know, do I even bother with church? But if, if, if I'm right in the things I've been saying, if Jesus is right about the church and its centrality, we need to think differently. Think, no, no, what is the first call on my life? It's to serve him. And that will involve serving his people. And it becomes a priority. It becomes a strong stake in the ground, a priority in my life. I'm going to help establish this community in planet Earth. I'm going to give myself to building something great for God. Very simple. For some of you, this is, this is practical. It's like, how can I... We're trying to build a church here in Amsterdam. We're trying to get Liberty Church to reach this city. We're trying to get, get these Sundays gathering more and more and more people. So we have to have more than one meeting. That We have to do all we can to keep reaching more and more and effectively building something great for God in this city. What will that involve for you? What way will it mean your life goes? What decisions will it demand of you? And then the second thing is... is very simply, for those of you for whom following Jesus has never been a priority before because you've been really not, not keen on being shamed. And maybe you've, for the first time, began to realize today, actually, I need a savior. <laughs> it's not that I, I sort of have to crouch down to become a Christian and become one of those people I used to despise. It's actually, I get the privilege of being welcomed into God's family. I get the privilege of being forgiven for my sins. <sighs> forgiven for my past. Cleaned up from the, the stuff that, that's just horrible stuff in my life that I just wish, wish wasn't there, wish I'd never done. That I can have hope for the future. These are all things that we receive from Jesus if we come to him by faith. And today, some of you will take communion in, in just a moment as we, as we stand and as we come to the table. It will be an opportunity uh, to, to take bread and wine and, and remember what Jesus has done. Some of you, you've never done that before, or not as a believer. 
you've never become a Christian before and you're not sure, am I allowed to take bread and wine? Well, absolutely, if you come through faith in Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you, if you say sorry to him for the past, for the things you've done, for the sin, the things that are against God, and you start saying, Jesus, I, I put my trust in you, and if you receive his forgiveness, which is a gift because of his blood that was shed on the cross, you can become a Christian today. You can be saved today. And that means by all means come to the table. Take bread and wine with us. If, you're, if you'd like to do that, you'd like to know what does that mean? How do I become a Christian? What do I have to do? How do I pray? I'd, I'd love to pray with you personally. I would love to talk to you if you'd like to talk to me about it. Or one of the other people that's been leading here today, Lenny or Matt or others that you see that are part of this church, talk to them, pray with them. We'd love to help you. I'm going to hand over to Matt who's going to come and lead us into communion. Let me just pray as we do that. Father, we thank you for your love for your people. We thank you for the gift of your son who's brought us into fellowship with you. And we pray, help us to be as inspired about your church as we need to be, to serve you faithfully and fruitfully in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.